Welcome to the November 8th Health and Nutrition Articles of the Angus Beef Bulletin Extra. Thanks for joining us here on the Angus Beef Bulletin Audio. I'm Casey Brown, Managing Editor of Audio for the Angus Beef Bulletin. If you have questions or comments, please let us know at abbeditorial at angus.org. Now, let's get started. Five Misconceptions About Liver Flukes Debunked Knowledge is Power Against Resilient Liver Flukes Parasites in cattle are nothing to mess with. The liver fluke is no exception. Previously an issue with which only producers in the wet regions of the Gulf and Pacific coasts had to deal, these dynamic pests have become a worsening problem for producers around across the country. The economic losses from a liver fluke infection are challenging to determine. As many cattle don't show outward symptoms, liver flukes are difficult to detect, and infections aren't uniform within a herd. Flukes have been found to be a persistent issue. Jody Wade, a veterinarian with Baring Ingelheim, is concerned for several reasons. Due, the, due to the recent migration of liver flukes, producers and veterinarians who haven't had to deal with them have limited education on how their life cycle affects cattle, as well as how to properly treat and prevent an infection. The negative effects, diminished reproductive health, lowered feed efficiency, slowed growth rates, and overall diminished productivity can be costly if left untreated. There are many challenges surrounding liver flukes, but debunking some major misconceptions will help producers take them on. Misconception number one, they're just like other parasites. In order to effectively treat and prevent liver fluke infestation, it's important to understand their life cycle. It is far more complex than that of a typical parasite. Because of liver fluke's unique life cycle, they have to depend on a specific water pattern to survive, which includes tapping into a Pseudococcinia columnella snail, also known as a limnaid snail, as an intermediate host for a couple months, says Wade. The parasite emerges from the snail and attaches to plants in or near water sources where cattle graze. Once cattle ingest liver flukes at their small developing stage, the flukes start to destroy liver tissues before growing into adults and laying eggs. The eggs then pass through the animal in the manure, where they hatch into larvae that then search for snails, continuing the life cycle. Misconception number two, flukes are only a regional problem. In the past, liver flukes only showed up in cattle in the moist environments of the Gulf and Pacific coasts. However, more recently, liver flukes have successfully migrated to 26 states. Partly due to the modern movement patterns and transportation of cattle, wildlife, and hay, and partly due to shifting rain patterns, liver flukes have become an issue for a whole new set of producers. Robert Gukich, a veterinarian with Lake Wales Large Animal Services in Florida, says he has seen an uptick in infestations in his area. We are used to flukes in Florida, but in the last four or five years, we've seen more cattle diagnosed, he observes. It could be a result of the mild winters we've had and the snails not burrowing as deep into the soil to save themselves, and therefore being more available for flukes. With the spread of liver flukes across the country, any producer with wet pastures and snails is going to be, su is going to be susceptible to a potential issue. With any amount of rainfall that produces standing water, conditions are prime for a fluke to find a snail and live out its life cycle, says Wade. With cattle traveling across the country, liver flukes are likely to travel and make a go of it, no matter where they end up. Misconception number three, parasites won't affect my herd in a drought. During a drought, it might seem liver flukes and other parasites would be less of an issue due to their reliance on a wet environment. 
However, no matter the weather, cattle are always drawn to water, Kukich explains. Even in high, dry, and sandy areas, we have found flukes in cattle because they are drawn to any sort of water, holding ponds, water troughs, etc. And they will still make their way through a life cycle involving a snail, even if conditions aren't ideal. Keeping cattle away from extremely wet areas seems a no-brainer to prevent flukes, but cattle will always need water. In the wet seasons, you can try to keep cattle out of the major wetlands, but they will always be drawn to the grasses in wet areas, as dry areas are eaten up and wetland grasses tend to have more nutritional value. Misconception number four, an infestation is only apparent post-slaughter. Though post-slaughter discovery of liver flukes is without question the most obvious way to find an issue, it is certainly not the only option. In areas regularly dealing with liver flukes, Fecal egg count reduction testing is a uh, routine practice, notes Wade. Running diagnostics on fecal samples is an easy way to quickly identify an issue under the microscope. In in Ukich's region in Florida, he will often test twice if he suspects an issue and the first test comes back negative. Because of the different stages of infection in the animal, we may not see eggs passed in a single sample, he explains. FECRT is pertinent to discovering an an issue and is particularly important in regions with a higher prevalence of liver fluke issues. Misconception number five, a parasite treatment is a catch-all. Though cattle infested with, with liver flukes rarely show obvious signs, an infestation can cause a slew of negative effects, including reduced conception rates, which may have far greater ramifications. Assuming a traditional dewormer will cover you in a fluke-infested area is a misconception Wade says he wants to correct. Stopping liver flukes before they migrate through the bile ducts, usually in the fall, is crucial, Wade asserts. Treating cattle with a special compound called chlorsulin is your best option to knock them down. Finally, Wade emphasizes, if we can shut down liver flukes, then we can keep cattle on course to perform like they're supposed to and be productive contributors for a producer in the long run. Wade recommends working with a veterinarian to establish a strategic deworming program. How and when you decide to treat for liver flukes will depend on in what region of the country you are located. A veterinarian can help you create a protocol unique to the circumstances of your operation. Editors note this article is provided by Beringer Ingelheim Animal Health USA. It's time for a new approach to internal parasites in cattle. Use species-specific qualitative analysis for a more, more holistic approach to internal parasite control by M. Wayne Ayers with Alanco Animal Health. The last new molecule for internal parasite control was introduced into the marketplace nearly 15 years ago. Managing risk, which includes parasite management, is a key component of operational sustainability. One cannot manage what one does not measure. Therefore, we must do a better job at measuring the risk of parasitism. If we can better measure parasitism, we, in turn, should be able to better manage parasites and help elongate the effectiveness of currently available molecules. To do so, it's important to understand where we've been and how we treat internal parasites in the future. History of internal parasites. Since cattle were first domesticated, cattle producers have dealt with decreased performance in their herds due to four main categories of internal parasites, each of which poses a different risk of economic loss for the producer and potential harm to cattle. Protozoa, coccidia and cryptosporidium, cestodes, tapeworms, 
nematodes, roundworms, and trematodes, flukes. It was nearly 60 years ago when one of the first active ingredients, thiabendazole, was brought to the marketplace to help reduce potential losses from internal parasites, specifically gastrointestinal nematodes. Over time, we saw several new molecules and drug classes brought to the marketplace, all of which served as valuable tools for producers in their fight against internal parasites. Despite the introduction of these tools, producers continued to be challenged by GI nematodes. Within 10 years of each new molecule being brought to market, we began to see reports of resistance in one or more parasite species to that molecule. Today, GI nematodes are said to be responsible for approximately $3 billion in losses across all aspects of the cattle industry in the United States. Because of this, we cannot continue to think in the narrow terms of a solution in a syringe to control internal parasites. It is time to think of managing parasites of economic concern to a level we can live with economically and our cattle can live with physiology, physiologically. Parasite management tools, strengths and weaknesses. Parasite management is a big picture approach to internal parasites that includes pasture management, stocking density, seasonal grazing patterns, targeted and timely treatments, species of parasite present, treatments appropriate for the species of concern, and refugia. Several tools exist to evaluate the presence of parasites, the species present, and effectiveness of a given treatment. These include fecal egg counts, copper culture, hatching parasite eggs in the lab to identify the species in a given sample, fecal egg count reduction test, the difference in egg counts before and after treatment, nemobiome sequencing, a polymerase chain reaction panel that uh, describes the parasite species present in a sample, and PCRs to detect genes that code for resistance to one or more anthelmintics. While each of these have a place in the process of developing parasite management strategy, they also each have their own strengths and weaknesses. For example, FEC gives results as eggs per gram of feces. On the surface, it would seem to represent the parasite load of a given host. However, as a standalone number, it can be a less than accurate indication of severity of parasite load due to time of year, age of host, and species of parasite present, which can all influence the number and therefore the interpretation of the test. This is why it's important to understand what species of internal parasites are present. There are around 15 species of parasitic worms affecting cattle, but four or five are responsible for most of the economic losses. These top five can have regional differences in both importance and severity of infection. The females of each species also have different reproductive capacities. For example, Nematodirus lay 50 to 100 eggs per day, while Haemonchus can lay 10,000 or more. One of the most costly and significant parasites, Ostertagia, will lay only 100 to 200 eggs per day. While it may seem obvious to use fecal egg count when one species is laying 100 times more eggs than another species, the results can be misinterpreted. Not only that, but four of the most common and economically important worms have eggs that are not distinguishable from each other under the microscope. So when we perform a fecal egg count alone, all we can conclude is the animal has parasites, as represented by some number of eggs seen from the test results. Species-specific quantitative analysis, the future of internal parasite control. Species-specific 
quantitative analysis is a holistic and innovative approach to GI nematode management that uses a combination of the tools listed above to evaluate the need for treatment and potential treatment options, including the estimated relative parasite load using fecal egg count, parasite species present, which is evaluated by copper culture and or nemobiome sequencing, pathologic potential of the species represented, the estimated percent of the population represented by each species within a given herd or production unit, and or evaluation of efficacy of previous or current treatment using fecal egg count reduction test. As with many things in life, making informed decisions helps us move forward. By using SSQA to evaluate the parasites present, producers can make more informed choices in their parasite treatment protocols, which will help reduce the risk of developing resistance and help to ensure the longevity of the currently available molecules for internal parasite control. Editor's note, M. Wayne Ayers is a veterinarian and senior technical beef consultant for Alanco Animal Health. Opportunities for growing cattle on self-fed rations. Using byproducts in grower rations may be a viable alternative to grazing wheat pasture this winter. By Paul Beck with Oklahoma State University. Conditions indicate there will likely be value in buying or retaining calves this fall to sell as feeders next spring. Lack of wheat pa pasture and cost of hay and feed have priced most of our normal production systems out of the market. Some other options that should be considered include using low-quality products from grain, cotton, or peanut processing as roughage replacements in self-fed rations. Products like cotton gin trash, peanut holes, or rice mill feed may be locally available or have the potential to be shipped in at a low enough price to provide viable options for growing calves or wintering beef cows. Rice mill feed is a blend of 67% ground rice hulls and 33% rice bran from the rice milling industry. Gin trash is made up of cotton leaves, seed, immature bowls, stems, and lint from the cotton ginning process. Peanut hulls are the shells of the peanuts removed during processing. All of these are high in fiber and can be extremely variable in composition and nutrient profile. Self-feeding rations composed of rice mill feed and corn or rice mill feed and soybean hulls, along with free choice hay offered separately, showed some promising results for growing calves. Research from Alabama in 2004 showed that growing steers fed a blend of 60% rice mill feed and 40% corn gained more than 2.2 pounds per day and consumed nearly 22 pounds of feed and 3 pounds of hay per day. These dry matter intakes were more than 3.3% of their body weight. As corn replaced more rice mill feed, gains and intake of feed increased, but hay intake decreased. Feed efficiencies in this system were from 8.3 to 11.1 .1 total pounds of feed and hay per pound of gain for the 40-60 rice mill feed and corn and the 60-40 rice mill feed and corn blend, respectively. When soybean hulls were used as the energy source in similar rations, steers fed 70% of rice mill feed and 30% soybean hulls consumed more than 26 pounds of the feed and 4 pounds of hay on a dry matter basis. This equated to more than 4.5% of body weight in daily dry matter consumption. Steers on the 70% rice mill feed diet gained 2.2 pounds per day, and as more soybean hulls replaced rice mill feed, feed intake and average daily gains increased, but hay intake decreased. Similar research from Alabama in 2008 used peanut hulls and cotton gin trash as roughage replacements in self-fed rations. 
These diets included either 45% peanut hulls or cotton gin trash, along with cracked corn at 55%, or with 47% cracked corn and 8% cottonseed meal. The peanut hull cracked corn diet was slightly deficient in protein, which affected both intake and performance. But steers still had daily fed and hay consumption rates, more than 3.3% of body weight, and gained 1.9 pounds per day. Steers fed the peanut hull diet, containing added protein from cottonseed meal, consumed feed and hay at 3.7% of body weight, and gained 2.25 pounds per day. Steers fed the gin trash diets, consumed more than 4% of their body weight daily, and gained more than 2.5 pounds per day. Some things to keep in mind. We normally do not expect growing steers to consume more than 25 to 3% of their body weight but intakes more than 3.3 to 4% of body weight are often observed in self-fed byproduct-based diets. Feeding a palatable, moderate-quality hay is essential for rumen health, especially for the ground byproduct-based diets. These feeding systems have potential for use in cows, but the high intake of these diets can be cost-prohibitive. So a higher inclusion rate of 60 to 80% of rice mill feed, gin trash, peanut hulls, or other byproducts should be considered. Also, self-feeding should be limited by time or physical barriers, such as lowering the door on the self-feeder to limit intake. These feeding programs are most efficient and cost-effective if on-farm feed mixing and delivery can be implemented and truckload lots of bulk commodities can be sourced and stored on-farm. Contact your local cooperative extension office for assistance in developing and managing feeding programs to fit your operation. Daryl Peel discusses the ramifications of drought and lack of wheat pasture in Oklahoma on the stalker cattle markets during the October 15, 2022 edition of SunUp TV. Watch it. Um, you can find the link for that on the article online. Editor's note, Paul Beck is an extension beef nutrition specialist for Oklahoma State University.